This is an Enlightenment Day talk by Joel, titled Enlightenment, a 26-Year Perspective, recorded August 9th, 2009, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, today we're celebrating Enlightenment Day, and uh, we have to pick some day to celebrate, and this is a Sunday that's close to the date of my Enlightenment, which was August 13th, 1983. But really, we're not celebrating my enlightenment. We're celebrating the potential of all human beings to wake up. And so, we have to pick some day, and this is the day we do it. And today uh, happens to be the 26th anniversary of my awakening. And 26 is a multiple of 13. And 13 has been a very significant number in my life. At age 13, I lost my faith in Christianity, and I became an atheist. At age 26, I went to Vietnam. That was a big life change there. At age 39, I went on a spiritual path. And then, as I said, August 13th was the date of my awakening. And also, oh, my path itself, if you look at the Kabbalist tradition, it's the 13th path. It's uh, the path from uh, Tipereth to Kether, if any of you know the Tree of Life from the Kabbalist tradition. So there are all these 13s uh, cropping up here. So the first 13th anniversary of my enlightenment, that was 1996, I gave a talk on the state of my union. It was a... (laughs) (laughs) Ah, you got it! (laughs) Nobody laughed in the, uh, (laughs) the first talk. And it was a a kind of a summation of how this uh, awakening has affected three areas of my life. Uh, My personal life, my teachings, and what I call my prophetic callings. I'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. So I thought I would do the same on the 26th anniversary. I got out that tape and I listened to it last week. I mean, I don't usually listen to my tapes, but uh, I wanted to see what I said back then. And it was kind of illuminating, as you'll see here in a minute. But anyway, I thought I would continue. So if anybody goes and checks out the first 13th one, I think it's called uh, a 13-year perspective or something like that. This will probably be the 26-year perspective. And you can listen to them back to back, and they might be fun. Anyway, so I thought I would do the same thing and continue with this pattern. So the first thing is my personal life. And... Uh, Over the years, people asked me if I was ever going to write a sequel to my spiritual autobiography, Naked Through the Gate. That I wrote the year after my awakening. So people, you know, asked me, well, what's happened to you since? Why don't you write a sequel? And the answer is, nothing's happened to me since. (laughs) (laughs) That's the answer I gave back in my 13th anniversary, and it continues to be the case today. And I don't mean by that that nothing has happened. Lots has happened. I got married. That was the big highlight of these 26 years. I've had uh, some deaths. My father died. My mother died. My older brother died. Cats have died. Uh, We got a dog. We've gone places, Spain and San Francisco and New York and things like that. So lots has happened. But it just hasn't happened to me. And one definition, you could say, of enlightenment is the realization that there is no me. There's no one to become enlightened. 
or to do anything else for that matter. So that's the bad news. The good news is there's no one to be deluded either. So that's why people speak of enlightenment as freedom and liberation and emancipation and so forth. So this continues to be the case. Nothing has really happened to me. I don't have a personal story going. Uh, or let me put it this way. I don't have a continuous, solid personal story. I can create a personal story to match the moment, which I do often, and it'll be different depending on different beings I'm with. Uh, with Jennifer, uh, the personal story would be something about a husband or, you know, with the dog, it's a different kind of story. It's in a different language. Oh, yeah, the Buddha. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, one of the things you see, once you, once you realize that none of these distinctions and boundaries is uh, actually objectively real, then it becomes a lot of fun. You can play with them. And one of the things, more than just playing with them, it becomes very important for us human beings is that we create them to serve us, and when they no longer serve us, we're free to change them and adjust them. And if you think that they are objectively real, you're stuck in that world. So this causes a lot of problems for us. So anyway, I uh, don't really have a sequel to write. But when I started my path, when I ended my path, rather, I had no idea of starting off to be a teacher. I thought I'd write my book and I'd send it out to the world. It's a testimony that if it can happen to a simple person like me, it can happen to anybody. And then I would have paid my, uh, my karmic duty and then I could just retire. Things didn't work out that way. And mostly because people started to ask me questions. And then I had to answer the questions. Then people started to ask me to be their teacher. And I had not had a traditional path, as those of you who have read Naked Through the Gate know. It was quite a short path. I didn't have a traditional teacher. And I wasn't part of an established tradition. So I didn't get a lot of elaborate teachings. And I didn't get many instructions for practice. And what little practice I did, I never mastered. I was a beginning meditator. And I just started to work with precepts on my path. So when people started asking to teach, I really had no idea what to do. I was a little bit like a famous um, Tibetan Buddhist. I've forgotten his name. But he woke up spontaneously. And so people recognized that, and they'd come to him for teachings, and he'd say, don't ask me. He said, I'm someone who got to the roof without using the ladder. <laughs> and so I had used the ladder, and I did have a path, but it was very compressed and, uh, and not a very teachable one. So I started then going around trying to learn how to be a teacher, and I did what anybody would do starting a path. I went to uh, hear various teachers give their talks. I listened to tapes. I got a Tibetan Buddhist meditation teacher so I could learn something really about meditation. And I started reading again. I'd stopped reading because there was not much point, but I started reading ferociously. And then over the years, a teaching started to develop. And most importantly was the feedback I started to get from my own students. And that's really how my teachings evolved. They evolved from that initial awakening, but that really can't be put into words but they evolved through uh, studying the mystics of these various traditions and uh, doing my own practice. Whenever I came across a practice, I would do it because I don't believe in teaching something that I haven't done. So in any case, these teachings evolved over time. And I must say that I did not add anything new to the teachings. Everything I teach you can find somewhere in the great traditions. 
And even I discovered what seemed to me at the time very unique idiosyncratic things that happened to me in my path, I've found precedence for them as well. So there's really nothing new here. What I have tried to do is to restate the teachings in more generic terms, to try to strip away some of the cultural elements that were formed in a pre-scientific worldview that blend into what we now consider magic or something like that, and to ferret out the essential principles and try to present them in a way that's suitable for our modern scientific age. So that much I can take credit for, but the rest of it I can't. So this work has culminated in a about, oh, I don't know, 100 recorded talks I've given over the years, which all are in, what, 200? What? Two to 300. Two to 300. Oh, my God, really? We saved all that? (laughs) Poor students. (laughs) And then this book that I just finished, The Way of Selflessness, which is sort of all my teachings now organized, hopefully, into some sort of, you know, logical format so you can follow from beginning to end the progression of them. And so this is really the culmination of my teachings. And I really have nothing more to add. I mean, I'm perfectly happy if anybody has a question to discuss and elaborate and so forth. But when I sit down and think of what should I talk about this Sunday, well, talk about this. Well, go listen to that tape. Or talk about that. Well, go listen to that tape. It's already done. So as some of you know, I've been doing a lot more questions and answers on Sundays than prepared talks. So this means that actually I have fulfilled a vision that I had on my path. Uh, At one point on my path, about halfway through, I knew I was going to have to leave my career in Hollywood to really pursue a spiritual path. I didn't quite know what I was going to do. I was toying with the idea of doing some sort of video thing, a documentary or something, because I knew something about that. And as I was contemplating this, I... And this was like a dream, but waking. I just saw, kind of a flash, these ruins. Ruins of our modern civilization, or some modern civilization. They weren't like the ancient Roman ruins. This was concrete and glass and wires and stuff like that. And I'm kind of climbing over this, and I see these little springs of water rising up, and then running down, and then all running together. And a voice, not like out of the sky, but a voice says, A thousand springs become a mighty stream. And I thought, oh, then it came to me what I was going to do. I was going to make this video newsletter, and I was going to visit all these communities around the West, uh, spiritual communities, and I was going to give them each a 10-minute slot on this video newsletter, and then there would be, you know, at the end, I don't know, an hour and a half kind of overview of all this, and this would be a mighty stream, or at least a stream, if not a mighty one. So it seemed to be a perfect template for my next step in my life, in my path. And I did do that. And I didn't realize at the time, though, you could look back and describe everything I've done since then as a manifestation of this. Trying to gather these teachings up and then bring them together and seeing how they are all really one current that runs through all these great traditions. So in that sense, I've fulfilled my teaching role, at least in terms of bringing anything new to it. And this brings me to the last part of how my enlightenment has affected my life, and that is what I call, for lack of a better term, my prophetic callings. 
And I do not mean to compare myself to the great prophets of the Abrahamic traditions, the Moses and Jesus and Muhammad and stuff like that. Quite the contrary, actually. They brought new revelations to their communities, or new communities formed around new revelations, and I haven't done that. But I don't know what other word to use to describe some insights, some dreams, visionary kinds of experiences, synchronicities that have happened to me that perhaps, and I was very tentatively, perhaps have significance for a larger community. Uh, in fact, I usually take the default position. If, if I have or if anybody has a dream or whatever, it may be very significant for you, but it's uh, dangerous to start trying to project it out onto other people. So I'm very cautious about that. But some things have happened that, uh, as I say, could have uh, significance. And then I feel that's something that I am called to manifest in some way. And let me give you two examples of this. One was uh, after my awakening, I went to live at the ranch of Dr. Franklin Merrill Wolf, who was a Western mystic. At the time, he was 96, 97 years old. And I went there primarily to write my book. I rented a little cabin on his property, and I wrote Naked Through the Gate. And while I was there, I met Amit Goswami and his wife Maggie. Is Maggie here this morning? No, she's not here. Well, anyway, his wife at the time. And he was a professor of physics at the U of O. Have you heard of Amit Goswami? Some of you probably have anyway. And he'd come to see Dr. Wolf. He didn't come to see me. But, you know, we'd get a chance to talk and so forth. And he started telling me about quantum mechanics and this and that. And I had no interest in physics at the time, or science or anything like that. Uh, I assiduously avoided all this all through my school. You know, I, I never took a physics class. I took biology because it was supposedly easier and barely got through that, whatever. But the more he described quantum mechanics, the more I began to see there are mysteries in quantum mechanics that aren't mysteries to mystics. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And so I got more and more interested in that, and he got more and more interested in me, and he was actually the first one who officially asked me to be a teacher. That set me off on all this. You could blame him and Maggie for, you know, everything that happened since, at least formally. Andrea was the first one to ask me a question, so actually she gets a lot of the blame too. But in any case... Uh, this was uh, purely synchronistic. I wasn't looking for any connection with science and, and so forth. And the reason I'm here in Eugene is because Maggie and Ahmet asked me after about a year to come up and live with them and start the center. So the Center for Sacred Sciences started out with this dual mission. As uh, Bill mentioned, one is to help individual seekers on their path. The other is to help foster a new worldview in which science and mysticism are seen as complementary ways of accessing the same underlying reality. So that was something I didn't seek or ask for and whatnot, but this isn't bragging, but I think I'm probably one of the few people who are mystics who have really... Um, I don't have a formal education in quantum mechanics. I can't do quantum mechanics. I can't do the math or anything. But after spending about three years with Amit, staying up until 1 and 2 in the morning, I feel like I've got a graduate education in the philosophy or the philosophical implications of quantum mechanics. So that's a kind of unique position. And then the first three, two or three years that I moved up here, uh, one of the first retreats that we did five of us went on a vision quest out into the Three Sisters Wilderness. We hiked out, we 
set up a base camp, and each of us had a little space out of sight of the others. We fasted, we had the water, but nothing to eat. We set up a little lean-to, and we marked off a space with imaginary boundaries in which we would stay. And then we would just cry for a vision. That's the purpose of a vision quest, and we'd see what happens. And so I went there, and I spent most of the day meditating. And the very first day, I woke up in the morning, a, a little herd of deer came almost right through where my little camp was. And they went off in the morning, and they came back in the evening. And I was being very quiet. I was meditating, basically. So they didn't seem to, you know, notice me or weren't bothered by me. They came very close. I almost could reach out and touch them. <clears throat> and then the second day, this happened again. And then the third day, which was going to be the last day, we left on the morning of the fourth day, as they came back at night, this one buck sort of was uh, lingering behind, the rest of the herd was going on, and he stopped and he started looking at me. So I got up, and it was almost like he was, you know, beckoning me. So I started following them, and we'd go on a little ways, and he would stop, and I would stop, and he'd look back, and like that, you know. So we'd go on a little ways, and we got to the boundary, and I realized I was going to break my vow and cross this boundary if I went any farther, and the buck had gone on, and he was back to the end of the room, and he turned back, and he's going like that. And I suddenly felt this overwhelming urge to just go follow him. I mean, I didn't think about it, but, you know, I would have died, I mean, in a week or two. I just, I go follow this herd, and I drink where they drank, and I couldn't eat the grass, and I just, I'd like completely submerge back into nature, you know. It was like not just a physical direction, but a psycho-spiritual direction, an evolutionary direction or something, where, you know, you just return to nature. And not only was it perfectly okay with me, I had a longing to do this. It would just be so wonderful just to let go of everything and just merge right back in, right there on the spot. But I didn't. I had taken a vow not to go beyond that. So a couple hours later, and now the sun is going down, and I'm meditating again. I'm up on a bluff, and I can see out over this valley with a river running through it. And this whole time I've been there, three days, I haven't seen one sign of human life. Not one sign, not a telephone pole, not hearing anybody shouting, not anything. And as I'm sitting there, it's this beautiful sunset, and this jet comes by, leaving its control. And my first response was, oh no, you're ruining this, this perfect, you know. And then I realized, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is the vision. This is where we're going. We're going to the stars. We're not going back to nature. There's no way. We're going forward. And that was the vision that I came away with from this trip. So this really set my, my sights on looking, not looking ahead in a grasping way, I can't wait to get to the future, but not being ever torn again about whether we can ever go back to nature, go back to the old traditions, go back to, you know, whatever. We have to take from them what we can use, and move into the unknown. And this was very early in my teaching career. So this has shaped a lot of my attitude and what I've brought to these teachings. So that's just another example of these kinds of experiences, which, again, I call them prophetic because they don't come from the ego. They just happen to be there. So, 13 years ago, the end of the tape was announcing that I was ready now to move from my teaching work that was uh, 
Primarily, the emphasis was in helping individual seekers on their path to this help fostering a new worldview work. That was 13 years ago. Uh, some profit I turned out to be, because here I am again. However, now, since the book is finished, I really do feel that that is what is going on, that I'm ready to shift gears. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to be around to answer questions and so forth, but that my primary focus is going to be, in whatever time I have left, doing this work with some other people, particularly Tom McFarlane, who a lot of you know, who's the center member, he's not here today, who is trained as a physicist and mathematician and so forth. So I'm in very good company there. I have a very good guide for this kind of work. And I thought maybe then I would just spend a little time painting in the widest brushstrokes what I see this entailing. And I'm going to really simplify everything, but just to give you some idea. So, first of all, the worldview, at least of educated Westerners, the last 200 years or so, has been materialism. This is the, uh, the dominant worldview that has shaped our technological society. And materialism depends on there being an objective world that exists out there independent of any subjects, any observers, any perceivers. This is really important because this is how scientific truths are confirmed. We have a theory, we create a theory, that's subjective, we invent one, and then we go test it. And the objective facts confirm or disconfirm the theory. So that's how we know if they're true, if they match the objective facts. So <clears throat> it's very important that our theories don't change the facts. If our theories start changing the facts, or our facts are dependent on the theories, we can't really rely on our theories because the facts are slippery. They're no longer set in stone out there. This is why Einstein said, the belief in an external world independent of the perceiving subject is the basis of all natural science. Wow, that's a heavy statement. And that's just a pure materialist statement and he's He's nailed it. This is really the heart of the matter. Now, the thing is, in quantum physics, this isn't quite so clear anymore. In fact, it seems that our subjective theories can influence the facts. And let me just give you one example that is a, really a streamlined here, oversimplified and all that, but nevertheless, I think it gets to the bare bones of it. If we theorize that matter is made up of particles, we can design experiments that will confirm that. If we theorize that matter is made up of waves, we can design experiments that confirm that. And they're contradictory. So which is it? Waves or particles? How we design the experiment determines the answer we're going to get. We're the ones who design the experiment. So suddenly the world is not a world of objective facts out there. Suddenly the facts appear to us the way we think about and then manipulate the world. So this is very disturbing to uh, materialists. Here's the uh, great physicist John Bell, the author of the Bell's Theorem, if any of you know anything about this. Here's what he says. The subject-object distinction is indeed at the very root 
of the unease that many people feel in connection with quantum mechanics. Some such distinction is dictated by the postulates of the theory, but exactly where or when to make it is not prescribed. So this is a crisis for materialism. Because materialism rests on this idea that there is an objective world out there. Now it's interesting because this idea of non-separability between the subject and the object really is at the heart of enlightenment or awakening or gnosis. Here's what Zen master Huang Po says. A perception, sudden as blinking, that subject and object are one, will lead to a deeply mysterious, wordless understanding. And by this understanding, you will awake to the truth of Zen. So what's a a big mystery and, and so troubling to a materialist is, in fact, exactly what is discovered at the end of a mystical path. Here's the Hindu mystic chakra. The illumined seer know him as the uttermost reality, infinite, absolute, without parts, pure consciousness. In him they find that knower, knowledge, and known have become one. Knower, knowledge, and known, subject and object. This is why the great Sufi, Ibn Arabi says, Know that you are an imagination, as is all that you regard as other than yourself an imagination. In fact, not only is the distinction between subject and object imaginary, as Ibn Arabi says, all distinctions are ultimately imaginary. Here's the great Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart. If we will see things truly, they are strangers to goodness, truth, and everything that tolerates any distinction, be it in a thought or in a name, in a notion or just a shadow of distinction. They are intimates of the one that is bare of any kind of multiplicity and distinction. So, from a mystic's point of view, actually, the problem is, as I said before, we create these distinctions, we project them onto reality, and then we take them to be real, to be objective. The creating of distinctions isn't the problem. The actual projecting them onto reality isn't the problem. The taking them to be real is the problem, which is precisely from a mystic's point of view what materialists do. They take it to be real. And as I said earlier, this is why in mystical traditions you find such an emphasis on freeing our attention from thoughts, from imagination, from distinctions. Because that is actually the heart of realization, to recognize their true nature. Here's how the Hindu mystic Anandamoyamaya describes it. She was a great mystic of the 20th century. What does direct perception of that mean? Seer, seeing, and seeing. These three are realized as modifications created by the mind, superimposed on the one all-pervading consciousness. She said it in a nutshell. So, This is why I believe, anyway, that actually uh, mysticism, the insights of mystics, can provide the foundations for a new worldview to replace materialism. 
It's interesting because if you read through uh, the literature of the 20th century, people who have been interested in science and mysticism, everybody's looking for science to confirm mysticism. <laughs> uh, I think it's the other way around. Science is the one that's in crisis, and mysticism can, in a certain sense, explain science. Not ultimately explain. Ultimately, you have to verify the truths of mystics, uh, I said, directly for yourself. But... Um, if we start to look at it from a mystical perspective, take that as the axiom of our worldview, oh, things start to make more sense. But if we are going to have a new worldview in which materialism is, in a relative sense, false and mysticism is true in a relative sense, we have to answer one vital, crucial question. And that is, why does science work? Anybody got any ideas? <laughs> Why does it work? Somebody's waving their hand? Yo, yeah, oh, yes, ah, thank you. Because we believe it to work. Ah, not quite. Well, I mean, in a certain sense, you're right. But let me give you an example of, uh, and this is an example that's been repeated over the last couple hundred years over and over and over again. I don't know where I've originally read it. But it's an excerpt from a British civil servant in India. Uh, actually, was at Burma at the time. And he witnessed a revolt against the British rule by Burmese peasants. And the British had, you know, trained troops equipped with rifles and an airplane. This was in the 30s. And the peasants came out with amulets and, and chanting <laughs> formulas, do you know what I mean? And pointing their fingers at the plane to make it fall out of the sky. It didn't work. Sure. It didn't work. And this is why, you know, Western civilization has imposed itself on the world. I mean... The technologies of these cultures work great within the cultures, but when they clash, science trumps. Did you have something to say? I think you just said, I was going to ask you what you meant by science works. I think you just said. Yes, I'm, I'm speaking. Well, yeah, go ahead. I think that quite, from what I, my statement, that I, I mean, I meant belief in a broader sense that, like, we even believe that story that you just mentioned also is true. Like that's all within... Yeah, ultimately, yes. But I'm, I'm now speaking in a relative yeah. plane here. Okay. We have to separate the absolute yeah. truth and the ultimate truth. These aren't teachings pointing the absolute truth. The whole worldview work, by the way, let me just digress here, is not about finding absolute truth. Worldviews are made of concepts, and they're systems of thought and so forth, and they are ephemeral. And any worldview is going to last for as long as it's needed, it's going to do its job for that culture, that people, that community, and then it's going to be replaced. So there's no question here about finally coming up with the ultimate worldview. Uh, somebody over here, yes? Well, I think the question really has to be thrown back at you. Does it work? Or is it, it works when it's applied properly. Maybe it doesn't work when it's not applied properly. But that's the point. When it's applied properly, I don't mind that qualification. Why is it that... Uh, Guns trump spells. That a fertilizer trumps praying to the rain god. Somebody over here. I think it's because at the core of science, what uh, moves science forward is the ability or the willingness to not know. And it's an open system in that sense that science is saying we don't know and that's why we're looking and the willingness to revise the current theories to you know, substitute the next paradigm and so forth. So it's got something that these traditional cultures don't have because at some point the traditional cultures kind of decide what it is. They say, this is it, now we know. Science is based on 
a comfortableness with not knowing. I think that's part of it, but I don't think it's the complete answer, partly because that's an ideal. If you read, like Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, uh, and I'm not a scientist, so I have to take other people's word for it, that is actually not how scientists go about approaching things. They already think they know, and that's why they set up an experiment to confirm. Now, if the evidence piles up, they're willing to jettison uh, you know, one theory for another. But a lot of evidence has to pile up. Like we have this assumption that gravity pulls everything to Earth. And if I lifted a, a pen and it shot up to the ceiling, and we'd all be amazed. Well, the first thing we'd think is there's some trick jewels pulling, see? I mean, you know. And if we were in a classroom in college, you might even get experts in to see if there are magnets or, you know, whatever. But even if you could not find any explanation, you could never write that up in a journal or anything, an isolated single anomaly. It would have to be every time it flies up. So I don't think scientists are as flexible as, as you make them out to be. And I also must say that if you look at traditions themselves, they have been pretty flexible. Buddhism is a good example. As Buddhism moved from India to Tibet to China to Japan, Korea, and so forth, you know, it changed quite a bit. It was quite adoptive. So there's a willingness to uh, change, as perhaps not as upfront, but it, it does happen. Yes, Pat. I think what Viv said brings a point that I've been struggling, well, not struggling with, but uh, aware of. My whole family is basically Christian, and very happily Christian. And I don't even talk to them about this path, uh, because they look at me like, why would you go beyond this when this is it? You know, uh, Christ is the answer. What, what's wrong with you, Aunt <laughs> and, and And basically, I don't do it. I just try to relate what I do with, with their Christian uh, knowledge that right. my sister had. So what is it that makes... I was brought up a Catholic. I was a very strict Catholic at one time. What makes some people not be settled for that, or, or like the scientists that just, you know, that settle for certain data and, and don't want to go beyond. Well, now you're getting into psychology and stuff like that. I mean, my, my general answer would be, just based on my personal experience in life, is it's fear that people they have a worldview. A worldview is very important. People need a worldview. They need a way to look at the world that it makes sense to them. And then they need to be able to share that with other people so we can cooperate and harmonize and whatnot. So to lose a worldview is a, a terrifying thing for most people. So I think there's a lot of fear involved in that. Yes? Was it um, absolute and relative? So religions or the spells are maybe more coming from? I'm sorry, what? The spells or the religions are looking at more the absolute truths, whereas science is going more for relative. Yes, that's interesting because that's kind of the way we've sort of come up with this compromise that, you know, religion's over here and science is over here and scientists do their thing and if they don't bother us, we won't bother them and we'll do our thing and we're looking for a different kind of truth. Relatively, I mean, you know, gravity works, but absolutely. Well, the interesting thing, I should say, is there a worldview in which they're not separated like that, in which they can both be seen to be complementary with each other, not just dealing with different domains, but actually in a certain way complement each other. I mean, mystics are not going to be scientists unless they go to school and learn to do science. And scientists aren't going to be mystics unless they you know, get to work and meditate and do those sorts of things. But at least they won't be contradictory. The way Einstein said, and by the way, Einstein hated quantum mechanics, he said, no, the science depends on a belief that there's an objective world out there. 
Mystics, I'm not speaking for all religious people, but mystics have insisted there is no objective world out there in that materialist sense. So this is a contradiction. A new worldview would hopefully resolve that somehow. But we still have to deal with the practical question of why science works. Did you want to say something? It seems to me that there's belief is a part of it, but it really has to do with that all of us being one of the separated sons or joining the separation of this plane believe that uh, that the external world is real. I'm sorry, I missed that last... That the external world is yeah. real. Yeah. And even people who believe in spiritual practices, I, I just think the ego rules out. <laughs> this whole thing about the um, believing that we're separate identities and um, that we see... Uh, <clears throat> the whole world is, can be influenced by our egos. Yes, and I think you're right. I mean, one thing that's universal is wherever there is delusion, there is the idea of a separation, of being a separate entity. What's interesting from culture to culture is where that line is drawn. It's not always drawn the same way. So in some cultures, you include, for instance, your implements, the things you've made, you know, and or your name, and that you know, we wouldn't include. So this is, gives us a clue that where we draw these lines isn't ultimately objectively real. But nevertheless, what we're talking about here is how come some things work better than others? Some uh, ways of looking at the world. Okay, one more and then I'm going to go on. Well, science focuses on materiality. And we live in a world that's dominated by materiality. Well, it's a good question right now. What does matter? Is it a wave? Is it a particle? I mean, that is really the question up in the air. So it's interesting that you give that response because that is, you know, a pretty typical response of our culture. But in point of fact, right now in our culture, although most people out there still think that way, that is part of the heart of the mystery that quantum mechanics has revealed. When we talk about materiality, what are we talking about? And we don't know, frankly. Okay, well... And we can talk more about this, but uh, I just wanted to give you a, a taste of how difficult this question is and what uh, Tom and I and others like us are trying to do. Is there a way to actually see all this within one single framework? So, let me uh, give you just a hint of where we're going. This is Tom and I. One of the things that is interesting about mystics is the role that they assign to thoughts and language and words and so forth, that they are really powerful. That that is how we think about the world, that's how the world appears to us. And that's why to people that hold different worldviews, the world appears quite different. Pat mentioned the Christian worldview. People living in a particularly fundamentalist Christian worldview, the world appears very different to them than it appears to a materialist. And I'll give you a quick illustration of this. I read someplace again. I'm not quite sure where. But you can go to the Grand Canyon. You can take a trip down the, what is it, the river that runs through the Grand Canyon? Colorado. Colorado. And you can take a tour. And there are two kinds of tours you can take. You can take a tour with a modern geologist from, I don't know, the University of New Mexico or something. And you go three days on a raft, and you go down the canyon, and he points out all the, the strata of rock and earth and so forth, and this is the Paleolith, and this is the Neolithic Age, and this and that, and shows you, you know, what you can tell about the Earth's history and whatnot. 
And then you can go back to the head and you can take another tour with a fundamentalist Christian. And you'll go down the same river, looking at the same scenes, and he'll point out where Noah's flood was and this and that and so forth. So you're looking at the same stuff, but you're looking at through totally different lenses, right? And this all comes from mystics' point of view because we project thoughts and distinctions and boundaries onto uh, ultimately a non-dual reality. Now, if we, and I'm being really, really general here, way oversimplifying, but if we look at uh, pre-scientific worldviews, they tended to distinguish things by qualities. Light, dark, soft, hard, wet, uh, dry, things like that. And I'll give you one example. At one time, in, at least in Europe and through the Middle East and so forth, the worldview that was common saw everything as made of four elements. Earth, water, fire, wind, or air. And so everything is made of these things. Now these are qualitative things. They're not precise quantitative distinctions. And they work very well in their realm. Based on this, you can build a a crude shelter out of stones, let's say. It will protect you from the wind and the rain. So you get stones about the same size, and you start piling them up, and you can, you know, build a shelter like that. Now, the secret of science is mathematics. Science's language is mathematics. Mathematics makes precise quantitative distinctions. And not only does it make precise quantitative distinctions in the way we think about the world, but how we observe the world. Because with mathematics, we create instruments like rulers and clocks and things like that that divide the world up into precise units, quantities. So if I have a ruler of some sort now, and I go out, now I can measure stones, and I can cut them uniformly, and I can build much bigger things, like castles and temples and all that kind of stuff. And if we look at the history of science, the progress of science, the progress of physics is always preceded, and astronomy, I should say, we begin with astronomy, is preceded by new mathematics. Uh, the Babylonians who started this didn't have trigonometry, so they couldn't do the kind of mathematics that Ptolemy could do when he came up with his marvelous system for predicting the position of the planets and everything. And they didn't have uh, calculus until Newton came along and invented fluxions, and then Leibniz at the same time invented calculus, which gives us uh, classical mechanics. And quantum mechanics depends on uh, matrix group theory or something like that. That may not be group theory. Don't take me literally there. So we've proceeded with a new language. And it's the imposition of this language, the projection of these kinds of distinctions on the world that allows us to chop it up in very precise ways and reassemble it in very precise ways. So I just want to give you an idea if that's the direction that Tom and I are going. That's what we're working on here. So, it doesn't mean that the center is now going to devote all its energies to doing worldview work or anything like that. We have great teachers with Fred and Todd and so forth who are going to continue to help individual seekers on their path, and hopefully we're going to have more. You get to work, guys, and wake up, <laughs> and, uh, and we'll put you to work. You think you'll be free, uh-uh. We're going to draft you. You know, and I'll be around, and I'll still give talks and lead the fall retreat and stuff like that, but you're going to probably see less of me. And if you wonder, what's happening with Joel? 
Is he retired there and he's lying in his hammock in the backyard and talking to his dog? No, I'm hard at work trying to learn something about mathematics at, uh, at this old age. So that's my little talk for this morning. Any last questions or comments? Yes? Uh, isn't uh, part of the work that you and Tom are doing to use the language of mathematics for both um, mysticism and science and a way to bring them together? Thank you very much. I would say that's the work that Tom's doing and has actually done a little of. And if you check out our website, we have a connection to our journal for a new worldview called Holos. And if you go there, you'll find an article by Tom called, I think it's Play of Distinctions. And I actually wrote a little introduction to it. And you can see the other side of it that Fred's talking about. Tom has taken the teachings of the mystics and he has translated them into a very primitive calculus of distinctions that he got from uh, Spencer Brown. So this is one of the, the interesting things about this. If you can express the truths of science in mathematics and you can express the truths of mystics in mathematics, you're having mystics and scientists talk in the same language. Literally. So that's kind of exciting too. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, Maura. Oh, Maura, uh, there you are, okay. <laughs> Well, I think, um, and my response to this is that I think you're giving us all a very good opportunity to practice being bodhisattvas. Because, um, you know, I think, uh, just speaking for myself, I wish you well in that endeavor and taking this message in a different way. And I'm going to miss having you around more. <laughs> oh, so. but I'm going to miss you too, Maura. <laughs> Well, I must say it's mutual because, you know, this has been so rich. I said the most important aspect of my whole work so far has been my interaction with students. And I've learned as much, if not more, from you than you've learned from me. So uh, any value that my teachings have comes out of that interaction. So it's completely mutual and codependent <laughs> in, in, in the good sense of it. Like codependent arising. That's it. <laughs> Are you going somewhere? Interdependent. Interdependent, thank you. <laughs> Let's like clear that one up quickly. Uh, Are you going somewhere? Uh, physically? No, yeah, physically. She seems to be sad. Oh, well, no, not right away. I mean, eventually, I don't know. I don't know if we want to stay in Eugene forever, but we don't have any plans. Like, we're not about to have a bon voyage party or something like that. <laughs> Okay, well, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to stay. Is there extra cookies or something back there? Or? Yeah, we've got a lot of goodies the center provided for celebrate today. And uh, uh, we even have some port here on this day. We like to uh, drink a toast to Dr. Wolf that Joel mentioned. I, actually, I think today is his anniversary of his enlightenment, isn't it? The ninth? Or is it the no, 7th it was, seventh. but close. Closer than mine. Yes, he, he drank uh, uh, cheap port, <laughs> which I don't care for much, but on the, on the anniversary, I'll have a glass of the cheap port. Yeah.